You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Well, it's good to be here. I had, we had a good time at the real Christians who get up early for church. Now you lazy Christians show up after two breakfasts, done watch two Netflix shows, and decide to come to church. Well, no, praise God. It is good to be here. You need to know I love your pastor, Pastor Jeff. It, my son is 31 and he's 34. I felt so old at his house last night and um, while their big dog was harassing me with a blonde afro, big old dog. Amen, amen. But it's good to be here. I remember Pastor Jeff, we were in Vail, Colorado, and he talked about planting and he talked about um, how he wanted to see a church formed and reach Houston and beyond and write books and plant churches. Well, he's written a few books and planted this church. And so it's so good to be here to see your face because as he talks about you with joy, it's so good to put a face to a big part of his joy, which is Redeemer Church. So, man, it's, I'm happy to be here. Um, I got three boys. Um, 21, 22, and 31, and three grandkids, and I'm at the house, and Jeff's kids are younger than my grandkids. And so, again, felt old. So I'm going to preach long just to disrespect them for being young. And, um, and man, I want to acknowledge my good friend, um, my roommate in college in 1988 in Greensboro, North Carolina, um, Kevin McCray. He's from Southeast D.C. He's um, a pretty boy big-time exec, one of the biggest brains on the earth that I know of. So I praise God that he's here. He lives in Houston by way of China and D.C., but we're glad he's here. I love him. Got to eat with him at Torchies Tacos. They said, woo, the Torchies. <laughs> and so I'm so glad he's here. He was my roommate. He was my best roommate. My next one was a mess. And so I praise God for him. I love him so much. His mama and his I remember his crazy dad, and so it's just a good, good weekend for me as I travel so much. I got to stay at Jeff's mansion in my own room, have my own toothpaste, everything. And so, so I was so happy to be there. So and Miss Natalie came and spoke, and the cool surfer son here came, and he was flipping his hair last night around. So I praise God for you guys. So listen, I ain't going to play with y'all no more. I'm about to jump into this word. And I'm so glad, you know, I love when pastors come off sabbatical. I said to my wife, Angel, I said, Angel, Jeff is going to be there, I hear. Is he worried that I'm going to say something bad or something? <laughs> is he there to monitor to me? That's, a, that's some black stuff. That's some, some profiling. That's racial profiling. <laughs> she said, maybe you, he thinks you can preach good or something. I said, no, can't be that. <laughs> well, praise God for Jeff. I love him. and. Man, I, I love his books. I love them, and I love y'all. So let's dive in. I'll be in Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 35. And my sermon today is called Christ, apostrophe S, heart for the harvest. Christ's heart for the harvest. And I'll be reading from the CSB. I know you're a CSB church. I call it the Camden Street Bible. So I'll be in the CSB in Matthew chapter 9. I'll read for your hearing. 
Let me get there. I know I have it on electronic, but I still like to read some paper every now and again. So you can open your Bible or your device. Look what the Bible says. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plent- the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Father, we need you. We can be so zoomed out into all the things we do throughout the week, the things we forgot, the things we have to do, the arguments we have with our spouses, the things that the kids didn't do and all of our issues, our bills and our challenges. God, make this a sacred space that we would be zoomed only into you, that we would hear from you, not Doug Loganisms, but from what the word of God teaches us, that it might challenge us, rebuke us, correct us, and cause us, call us to repentance, that we might walk in your word, be renewed, and that we might run to our open-armed father who loves us, even as we're a mess most days. So have your way in Christ's name. Amen. Christ's heart for the harvest. So this passage we're going to look at is what I like to call a hinge passage. It's a pivotal passage in the book of Matthew. See, what's a hinge passage, Doug? Well, a hinge is a swing point between two objects. A hinge holds together two objects. And the passage we're looking at today holds Jesus' ministry together with our ministry. As I've said, it's a pivotal passage in the book of Matthew. Up until now, it's been about Jesus's ministry. It's been about Jesus has been traveling throughout Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Not only that, he's been healing diseases, casting out demons, paralytics. Even Peter's mother-in-law has been healed. Jesus has calmed the storm. He tells the H, the two, and the O what to do because he made them. Blind have received their sight. He can make corneas do what no doctor or LASIK surgery can do. This The, the, the young girl has been raised from the dead. He can tell death to back up and get off, off you at the power of his voice and at the command of his words. He raises dead people and the mute are speaking. He can fix voice boxes without a HMO. As the crowds watch this, they rightly say, nothing like this has ever been seen in all of Israel. Nothing like this. So this, this messianic picture is nothing like this. Twitter in Jerusalem would have been popping. Instagram would have been jumping off all the healing and the ministry that Jesus would have been doing. He would have been rocking the world. They had never seen nothing like that. Not that they hadn't seen spooky healers. Not that they hadn't seen people proclaiming to be Messiah, but they hadn't seen the authoritative, eternal, real, deal. And this is what's jumping off. Nothing like this has ever been seen in all of Israel. But something happens right afterwards. Up until now, it's been about Jesus ministering in power. But a strange thing happens hereafter. If I read Matthew 10, 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So what's happening here? That's 10, 1. 
So what's happening here? Right at this moment when Jesus makes the switch from doing all the preaching and teaching and healing himself to now commissioning his disciples to go out and preach and teach and heal. What's going on here is that Jesus is about to commission his followers to do what he is doing. He's preached, he's about, get, he's about to get them to preach. He's taught with authority, he's about to send them out to teach with authority. He's driven out evil spirits and healed all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. He's about to get them to drive out evil spirits and heal all kinds of diseases. He's about to send them. So you have before you a before and after picture. And in between, you have this passage. 35 to 38. He wants us to see the plight of humanity as he does. I think that's what this passage captures. He wants us to see people's need to meet and receive him as savior. He wants us to be moved in our heart for lost people just as he was. He wants us to be able to see the harvest through his eyes. My first idea is the plight and the process of the harvest. The plight and the process of the harvest. What does he do for his kingdom advancement process? He goes throughout the cities and towns. Can't trick you there. Simple. He goes around where lost people are to advance the kingdom to lost people. He goes throughout the towns and he does it in three ways. How does he enact the kingdom advancement agenda? Teaching, preaching, and healing. Let's start with teaching. Teaching in the synagogues as became the custom of Paul and of Jesus going and unpacking and furthering the Torah to clearly explain the Old Testament's intentions and who the Messiah was and what he was coming to do and that he is the sum and summation of everything that God intended for this broken world. He would be hope. He would be healing. He would be freedom. He would be forgiveness. That's what the Mashiach of the Old Testament was coming to do, to be the propitiation, um, simple word, wrath bearer, to be the curse reverser. He was to crush the serpent's head. He was to unpack all the way from the garden to the city that he would be the wrath bearer, Satan taker, downer, bondage breaker, earth shaker, life changing Mashiach, the Messiah. That's what he would be teaching. And he would take Q&A at that time. But the second part here, he would do Q&A there, but his second trick, his, his second strategy was preaching. No Q&A, but he would declare un, non-negotiable truths of who he is as Messiah. He would declare non-negotiable truths, no question, you fight me later, email me, tweet me, but right now I'm preaching, be quiet and let me talk. That's what Jesus would be doing. He wouldn't be negotiating and he wouldn't get up there and say, I just want to share. He would preach with authority unapologetically. He would declare over and through culture and he would do that pastorally and gracious, not like a bully, but he would not negotiate the power and work of God. He wouldn't submit to culture, denominationalism, politics, race battles. He would preach the word, non-negotiable. We need some preachers again. 
We need some cats that don't get up there and say, I just want to share. Oh no, you go to Starbucks somewhere. We need somebody to get up here and preach the word of God. I need you to tell the lady that's, that's, that's disturbing the youth group, go, you need to sit down. Sit down, stop. I need, we need preachers that get into the Bible and eat the beautiful word of God and then share it and serve it to others. And people that have a passion for people who hate them and hate God and preach across any fight and any hostile ground, preach across people that they're not familiar with, preach to people who they don't look like, preach to people who with a translator, preach the word and they have to preach Jesus, preach Jesus, proclaim him, make him clear, unconfused confusion, break down issues and areas, preach Jesus over politics, preach Jesus over race division, preach Jesus over denominationalism, preach Jesus. I need you to preach. We need preachers that ain't scared to get unfriended. We need preachers who ain't scared to be trolled on Twitter. We need preachers to preach the non-negotiable truths of Jesus. Preachers. I don't need these corny FaceTime, Facebook Live at St. Mattress Baptist Church who don't even get out of bed to try to preach because you got a Facebook account. You're not a preacher. You're annoying. Block. Ordained, qualified, Bible preaching people of God. Preaching. We used to say in the old church, preach with Holy Ghost boldness. Holy Ghost boldness. Last piece of this three was healing. And I love the language. Look what it says, preaching good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. I want you to get this. At the fall in the garden, Adam and Eve would eat of the fruit and the cataclysmic separation from God and man would happen and death would have entered. And that's why we have the season Fall, or if you're in England, autumn. And death. And that's why black folk and white folk can hate each other and Chinese folk and Korean can hate each other. It was in the garden. Sin entered into the world. At the fall, division and destruction and death came at this great fall. What else entered into that was sickness, blindness, disease, affliction, all products of that garden fall. The Mashiach that would come, that was promised in the garden at the, what we say in theology, the proto-Euangelion, the prototype gospel message was that this God-man would come and he was going to reverse the curse crush the head of the serpent and lead a people from all peoples unto himself and make one new people, the people of God. This is important because we watch TV, the church, conservative, reformed type of evangelical church, and we watch some bootleg preachers on TV heal, do healing 
for $30 and the number to the credit card. We watch dudes blow on whole crowds and they fall out. And we think Jesus only heals through HMOs now. Not true. The devil can't diminish the power of God by trying to pervert and pimp it. Jesus heals. Our God is healer. Our God is healer. Don't be scared of that. I don't care what reverend so-and-so did when he smacked somebody in the head and they shook and fell. That's them. He is still healer. And I want to add to the language. It says healing every, the ESV says all diseases. What I want you to hear there is there's not one disease that can sneak by him. There's not one affliction that can sneak by him. See, I grew up in the hood and we would have people say, I sin so much. If I came to the church, it would burn down. And I say, well, first, that's never happened. Second, we got insurance. We'll get a new church better than this one if you burn it down. Matter of fact, come and burn it down. We can stop this little capital campaign right now. We'll have a swagged out building in the morning. So what I want you to hear when he says every, maybe there's something that's up on you. Some unconfessed stuff running through you. Some issue, some, even an ailment or an affliction of some sort that you haven't thrown at the foot of Jesus because you think it's too far gone or he can heal some stuff, but just not this. Maybe it's some deep-rooted abuse you suffered. Maybe it's some anxiety that you try to mask. Maybe it's some damage, some daddy issues, some mommy issues, some sibling stuff, some addiction, whether porn. Maybe it's something that you think you can't bring to the table. I want you to know Jesus says everything he can hear. Everything. Can I tell you this also? When he saves you, he doesn't ever regret saving you. He doesn't second guess if he should have. So he knows you're nastiest and he still heals. He knows your tape. You can delete the cookies on your computer so your wife don't know you watching porn. But you can't delete the cookies in your heart because Jesus sees and knows everything. And he still dies. He still looks on you with love. He still dances over you with joy. Every disease. I want that to say la. I want that to sit on you like cholesterol, like soul food at a cookout. He doesn't second guess saving you. He never wishes he could take it back. He loves you in all your brokenness, in all your mess. And he knows you're nasty better than you know you're nasty. And he still died. He still rose from the grave. He still gave grace to the undeserved. He's what a savior. What a savior. All diseases and all afflictions. This is the messianic picture. How do I know? If I were to take you to Matthew chapter 11. Look. John the Baptist is on death row. 
He's about to get guillotined. He's about to get his head chopped off for preaching the Messiah coming. That's what's happening. And John the baptizer, I know y'all Baptist. He wasn't Baptist, it's baptizer. So I know y'all thought John was Southern Baptist. He is not. John the baptizer, he sends one of his disciples to Jesus to go ask him, are you the Messiah or should we wait for another? Doug Logan translation, let me drive it down the street in Camden, New Jersey. Are you the real deal or are you bootleg? Because I'm about to get my head chopped off. I'm about to die for this. Are you Gucci or Uchi? Are you real? Are you the one? And I love Jesus' answer. This is what he says when they come back to him, when they come and ask Jesus. Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news, have the good news preached to them. I don't want you to see Jesus ducking the question. I want you to see Jesus answering the question. What would be the ministry of the Messiah? What would be the ministry of the Christ? It would be the transformation, bondage-breaking power of God working through a man to transform the world. So that's a better answer than, yes, I'm the Messiah. No, let the evidence tell the story of who him being Messiah, not just his talk, because we Christians, we hear a lot of people with talk that don't match what they walk. But Jesus doesn't answer the talk. He answers the walk as evidence that he is Messiah. And it would be, can I tell you, healing every disease and sickness was a regular part of gospel ministry, not some sidebar parsley next to the ribeye, but regular interwoven into who Jesus is and what he does. So don't let crazy people on TV run you away from believing God can heal. He still heals. Our God is healer. Don't sing that no more if you don't believe it. Our God is healer. Not just from sin, but from sickness. He's better than Obamacare. He's healer. My second idea, so that was the plight in the process. He went to the town, went around healing, preaching, and teaching. And now I want to go to the pity of the harvest. And this, the, 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 the cultural context I want you to get is shepherdless. Let me lay out this shepherdlessness as I get ready to dive in. Let me, let me I got to give you text context. Look at verse 36. It says this, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. I use the word shepherdless. I want you to see this shepherdless. I'm from, I live in Camden, New Jersey. There's a lot of, I used to, I live in Richmond, Virginia now for about 10 months. From Camden, I still live in the hood in Richmond, but it's like Aruba compared to Camden. I've only been around like two shootings. I had two shootings a night in Camden. Well, I like to watch two things, Pastor in the Hood. Judge Judy and Law and Order. Because at the beginning of Judge Judy, there's a problem. At the end of Judge Judy, there's an adjudication. 
At the beginning of law and order, there's a killer. At the end of law and order, there's a trial and somebody goes to jail. At the beginning of my day in Camden is a crime. At the end of the day, it's nobody goes to jail. And so I would die if I didn't see some idea of justice and closure. So I watched Law and Order and Judge Judy. And in so doing, watching Judge Judy, it's always a beautiful picture. I'm a thief, so I steal analogies from Judge Judy and Law and Order. Shepherdlessness. I want you to let this feel, let this be on the front of your mouth like after you swirl the wine around and you're aerating it. It just sits there so you can smell the bouquet of the cabernet. Shepherdlessness is a big word. It carries this idea of abandonment. He uses dejected and distressed. Distressed means anxiety and depressed ridden, unstable, overly anxious, almost in panic attack mode. Dejected means almost a suicidal posture of feeling so unwanted that you have no hope and separated from any joy. Those are big words. So this is how I want you to see Shepherdless through my Judge Judy episode last week. There was a little poodle in Texas, in Houston, playing in the yard, and the people weren't home, but they had it on the cameras recorded for court. And these three pit bulls jumped over the fence next door and jumped on this little poodle and was tearing the little poodle apart. Some dude sees it, jumps into the yard because there was nobody to help this dog. Shepherdless, dejected, now distressed, getting picked off. And he grabs the pit bulls puts them over the fence. They jump back over the fence. He runs them off, picks up the poodle, and brings the poodle. The poodle didn't make it, though. That's shepherdless. Open to be picked off. No direction. If nobody steps in and gets in the way of those pit bulls tearing you apart, you will surely not make it. Now, I don't want you to see yourself as the dude who jumped in. I want you to see yourself without Christ as the poodle. Paul says in Ephesians, without hope and without God. That's what we all were. And Jesus had to jump in the way of the pit bull, sin and death and the wrath of God and bear the wrath of God that we deserve to rescue us from that wrath as we were rejected and dejected, hopeless and shepherdless. Houston is loaded with shepherdless people. Houston is loaded with people who will be picked off in the hood from Hebrew Israelites, the nation of Islam and Pan-Africanism in the suburbs from having all you need and not needing God. We have to step into that and we got to stop infighting, arguing about CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and not worried about 45. We need to be worried about your lost neighbor who is beating his wife because there's so many shepherdless people. We have to see them as shepherdless. 
Jesus sees them as shepherdless. And that's the beauty because he is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is, John tells us, the good shepherd. David forecasted that he would be his Lord and shepherd, and he should have no lack of anything, and that the goodness of the shepherd would follow him, pursue him all the days of his life. Shepherdless, shepherdless. This is the pity of the harvest. We've got to get past our denominational division, past our academic pontificating. We've got to get past our evangelical bureaucracy. And we have to recognize the reason Jesus saved you is not, I said this earlier and, and the lady told me, you must have went to seminary. I did. Don't worry about that though. We've got to stop arguing the ordo salutis. Ordo salutis, order of salvation. That's, it's a $10 word. I'm not trying to floss. We got to stop arguing high theological terms. We got to, and, and I don't want you to think of your salvation in theological terms. I want you to think of your salvation in terms of, see, the reform, this and the this and that, and the Baptist this. I want you to see yourself, yourself in Christ because God loved you. That's it. That's it. He loved you. Don't turn it. Don't sermonize it. Don't theologize it. Why did Jesus save this nappy head boy from Patterson, New Jersey? Simply because he loved me. That doesn't make the theology wrong, but I don't go straight there. You know what I said to my wife on the ride up here? I said, babe, I'm about to preach. Pray for me because I'm going to tell some white jokes and I don't want nobody to shoot at me because we in Texas. She said, well, stop telling them. I said, it's automatic pilot. <laughs> And then she simply said, I love you. She didn't say, listen, the Greek word for. <laughs> she just told me she loved me. Can I tell you, when Jesus saved you, he was just showing you he loves you. Don't forget that when we look at shepherdless people. Don't put them through the lens of, you see, I, I see why they're homeless. They're probably on crack. I see why she ain't got no man. She always wearing them clothes. I see why he divorced. You see, is that? See, we can't look at people through that lens. We must see him as shepherdless, in need of the love of God. And by God, he's given you that love and you got to give it away. You can't get all you can, can all you get and sit on the can. It can't be us for no more bar the door. We have to extend out. Let's not grow Redeemer by transfer growth. Let's grow it by conversions. Let's get, see how this is up here? I want the baptismal pool up here and I want folk wet every week. I want us to be having good problems. I want so many folk getting saved, we got to dunk them every week. We just got towels lined up here like beauty bath and beyond up this piece. Let's go after some lost people. Why? Because Houston is loaded with people who don't know Jesus. Go further, millennials who hate Jesus. Go further, people who now clap at the idea of abortion. Go further, racial division at its peak. Go further, racial divide, denominational divide. We are the church. Shepherdlessness is what we specialize in because we have a savior who steps into darkness and makes enemies family. We must lead the way for shepherdless people. 
That's our picture. It's, an, it's love, though. E.M. Blakelock says this. It bears the burdens of others. It seeks the cost of pain to share grief and distress. It's an outreaching love. So Jesus saw. This gives us a beautiful view of the emotions of Jesus as Messiah. Jesus looks at sin plague people without a shepherd, and he feels compassion for them. Christ does not look at the crowd with contempt, but compassion. Compassion is the motivating emotion of Christ in this passage. Christians in this way, we feel when we look, um, and Christians in this way, how do we look at the world? Does compassion motivate us to spread the gospel? Or does our contempt for sin translate into contempt for sinners? Another question, are we unaffected by the sight of sinners altogether? Question, Redeemer, do unbelievers get on your nerves? Or for unbelievers, do you get on your knees? Let me, let me make you a quick evangelist. If your mama was dying and the doctor told you she had a few hours, I've seen the best evangelist at that bed. I've been at that bed. I've seen the best evangelists for unsaved mamas and grandmama. I've seen them whip out Jesus stuff they didn't know they had. I've seen them carefully and gracefully tell people, tell people dying that they love about Jesus so they wouldn't go to an eternal hell, tormented and separated from God. And I've seen people saved on a deathbed. Houston. In Houston, everybody that's unsaved is potentially on their deathbed to hell. Can we develop that urgency like they are our dying mama? Or are they just some random people who get on your nerves and distract you from Game of Thrones? Jesus saw them for who they really are. He knew what they needed. They needed a shepherd, a great shepherd. He saw them through the lens of godly compassion. I'm almost out of time, Jeff. He's on sabbatical. He's technically not here. Natalie, I'm, I'm, am I going to get in trouble? The, fir the first lady has spoken. He saw them through godly compassion. So on the cross... He saw through the spit in his face. He could see the one spitting on him. She's going to be an evangelist. The one calling him a demon and a witch doctor. He could see. He endured the shame, the writer of Hebrews say, endured the pain of the cross. None of that blocked him from blessing them, and none of that made him get down off the cross. He never regrets saving you. He never does because he can look at the shepherdless people through the lens of godly compassion. You must look at your lost neighbors through godly compassion, not annoyance. It's hard, though, because sometimes your neighbors are annoying. They dog poop on your grass, and you want to cuss them out 
in Jesus' name. But use this as an opportunity. So my question, Redeemer, do lost people break your heart? Or do they get on your nerves? Jesus is moved that they're shepherdless. He has compassion because he has power to save. As an evangelist in Houston, you should be moved by the shepherdless and know that you have the power of Christ for people to be saved. Jesus saves. He uses you. Now, you're not the saving agent. He is. I used to own a barbershop for years, and I always say clippers don't cut hair. I cut hair. Clippers remove hair. So what you are is your clippers in the hands of a compassionate God. Can you be clippers for God? A third idea. I'm doing bad, Jeff. I'll repent later. He saw the potential of the harvest. 37, look what it says. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is abundant and the workers are few. So he's saying basically the flocks in the fields are ripe. The harvest is plentiful. He saw the ripe harvest ready to be reaped. He saw the gathering of people into Christ's name. He, he saw people being brought in by God and into the family. Up until now, the reshaping of the harvest has been the responsibility. I'm not the reshaping. The reaping of the harvest has been the responsibility of Jesus himself. That's why I call this a hinge passage. Just like the crop of wheat needs workers to bring it in um, and they need a crew to bring it in. We need for helpless, harassed, and shepherdless people need to be brought in. In other words, people are ready to receive the good news. So let me ask you, do you believe the harvest is plentiful? The harvest is plentiful all around us. But the question is, will you own the lostness of Houston? Will you take ownership of lost people? Will you say, I am going to heaven, and before I do, I'm going to share the gospel with the least, the last, and the lost? until I die. I am going to love people who hate me and God. I am going to go after people. If it takes me 30 or 40 years, I don't care. See, sometimes lost people cook like brisket, slow. We got to make some brisket Christians. Cook them slow. It's not turn or burn. You might have a long relationship with somebody who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't want anything to do with it. And then 20 years later, they're getting baptized. Do you see the potential of the harvest? Do you, can you look at the blight on the block and see beauty on the block? Or do you see the drug dealer as a drug dealer dying, going to hell? Do you see the, 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 the wife abuser as a dude who just deserves hell and should go to jail? Or can you see Jesus all up in him like cholesterol, working on him, working on his heart and transforming him? Then you have to see the potential of the harvest because the passage says, then he said to the disciples, the harvest is abundant. Do you see the harvest abundant in Houston, in each of the wards, in Trumbull? Do you see the harvest or do you only see your situation? Are you only asking God to bless you and your family? I want to challenge us. I want us to run out of seats in the new building the first Sunday because of all the people we shared the gospel with, folk coming in. And I want crazy folk coming to church. 
I want angry folk. I want racists coming to church. I want baby mama drama. I want jokers to drop drugs when they sit down. I want all those type of folk, not just pretty folk, heaven folk. I want some hellions up in this piece because y'all going to show them heaven at Redeemer. And we're going to see many people saved. That's my prayer. That's the potential of the harvest. But you got to see beauty through the blight. Don't let the blight blind you from the beauty that God can work through his gospel. The harvest is plentiful. God is preparing them and he's preparing you. So preach the gospel. Have a cookout. Give some neighbors who hate you a Christmas present. Give them an Arbor Day card. I don't care. Find a way to connect with them so you can get some love on them. Not only did he see the potential, the harvest is plenty, but he saw a problem. Houston, we have a problem. The workers are few. He tells us the harvest is ready, but there's a problem. The workers are few. The problem is that people aren't ready to receive the gospel. The problem is we lack folk to tell it. Jesus looked around and he sees people who are helpless and harassed and shepherdless. And they're ready to hear the good news of the gospel. The problem is he needs and wants more people to tell the good news to a lost world. The workers are few. Can I just, can you just imagine at Ocean Spray to get to all them beautiful cranberries? They have to set an order out to just one company like Pizza Hut in America. And nobody is there to pick the cranberries and to squish the cranberries and send me cranberry juice. That business would fold and die. So God has booby-trapped in us as believers mission to take the world, take the word to the world. Never are you not a missionary. That's where we get this word missional. It's the adjectival form of mission, meaning it describes who we are. It's not some mode we kick into. There's a lot of evangelists that are just AWOL and non-existent. Can I tell you this? Transform people, transform cities. Transform people, transform cities. So when you get smacked in the face with grace, start loving Jesus, life starts changing, you want to smack other people in the face with some grace. So that can happen. And that want to continue until we see Jesus or Jesus sees us. That's the prayer and the hope. But missional living must be in our DNA. It must be in our discipleship. It just can't be on our webpage and not in our discipleship, not in our youth ministry, not in our women's and men's ministry. We have to pour in the DNA of each believer sharing the gospel with the lost world, not just friendship evangelism as we fear rejection. Share the gospel with the roughest, nastiest. You have a big gospel a big God who's able to do big things with little OU. He's able. My last idea. So we have the potential of the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. We have the, the problem of the harvest. The labors are few. So now I'll close with we have the power of the harvest. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. So I just talked all that hype. We got to reach people with the gospel. We got to get out there, share with our neighbor. And the passage seems to go like, 
after verse 37, we about to go do a cookout right now. But the pastor doesn't take that turn. He says, okay, now that I told you the harvest is plenty and labor is a few, now that I told you there's people shepherdless, now that I've told you that the gospel will bring them in, now that I told you all that, pray. You're like, Jesus, hold up. We got to get out there. You do, but you get out there on your knees. Before you talk to people about God, you need to talk to God about people. So we have to pray because it won't be your swag that leads people who don't know Jesus to be saved. It won't be your gifted Roman road. It won't be your weird track with the skeletons on it. It won't be your, the fish on the back of the minivan. It won't be your long, annoying voicemail with 77 scriptures. Praise the Lord, I'm not here, but Jesus rose from the grave. You ought to love him in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, glory, glory. Uh, stop doing that. <laughs> I'm not here, call back. It won't be that. It will be the Lord at work. So prayer is not inactivity on mission. Prayer is activity for mission. And it is priority. Evangelism can't be separated from prayer. Mission can't be separated from prayer. Often when we do, we're going out in our strength. And then we're asking God to show up after. Let's go out to these streets under the power of God. So he says, pray to a God outside of yourself, earnestly, with urgency with the implication of a presumed need. Pray intensely to the extent of being stressed. This idea of earnestly is, 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 is like a pleading, a, a begging of God to save people. It's, it's a crying out, a, a, a woeful, uh, God, please save. And then it's a get up and go to the chief harvester, not just the owner of the field, but the owner-operator who is instructively connected to the work. Andrew Murray says it like this. The man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in history. The man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in history. Send out laborers into his, into his harvest. I want you to hear that word, his. I know it's your neighborhood. I know it's your neighbors. I know it's your family. But it's God's harvest. The late Warren Wordsby says this, when we pray as he commanded, we will see what he saw, feel what he felt, and do what he did. God will multiply our lives as we share in the great harvest that is already ripe. So we're playing that God would raise up leaders. Can I say this as I close? It has always been God's intention from the beginning of time to call the people unto himself from the garden. See, the Bible starts in a garden and ends in a city. And all through the middle. 
is this microcosm that would be the church. And it would pick up some raggedy folk like me. But it would make it to glory because Jesus would be the driver. Exodus 9, 16 says this. However, I let you live for this purpose to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. It's always been God's heart for the harvest. Psalm 67, 3 and 4, let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations, the, the ethne, the ones outside of the covenant people, Jews, rejoice and shout for joy, for you judge the peoples with fairness and lead the nations on earth. And then Matthew 28, our great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Christ's heart has always been for the harvest. It's always been God's intention to redeem a people, a diverse scrambled eggs, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, misfit island people for himself. And when we start as a church to see the harvest is plentiful, when we start look through the blight and see the beauty and the potential that God can save from the uttermost, when we begin to get on our knees and pray till we crazy, until we tired. One of, my, one of the pastors I lead named Charlie, he says, when he gets finished doing evangelism in Baltimore, he's going to have empty clips and bloody knuckles. Empty clips and bloody knuckles. Let me translate that because black folks said, mm, and white folks said, what is he talking about? Empty clips. Y'all know that this text is guns. And bloody knuckles means after you finish shooting and you've got nothing left, you're going to duke it out until you die. Might that be, might it be said of us, Redeemer? We used everything we had to grow a church from lost people, from disconnected people, from black people, from white people, from angry people, from mentally disturbed people, from former prostitutes, from former drug dealers. We sought to empty all our clips of grace and to have the bloody knuckles of mercy that people in this city would know Jesus at all costs, that we might leave a legacy of grace so that our children, would know that we fought hard, not for denominational swag, not for theological or political bureaucracy, but we fought hard for the least, the last, and the lost, that Jesus' name would be the most famous name in Houston. Amen? And as you begin to pray, you might mess around and become the answer to your own prayers. So you ask God to raise you up to give you boldness, to give you courage, to give you his eternal swag that you might share the gospel with somebody who hates you and believe that God can get through the darkness and turns pimps into pastors. That's what he does. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.